May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So the Nobel Prize winners for 2019 were announced this week. Sir Peter Ratcliffe was one of three doctors who were awarded the prize in medicine. And they were given this prize for their collective research on how cells detect and adapt to the amount of oxygen that's available in the body. Ratcliffe, who was educated at Oxford and Cambridge and who is now the proud recipient of a Nobel Prize, by all indications, he's a pretty smart guy. But what also made the rounds on social media pretty quickly after Radcliffe's prize was announced was a photo of a letter that he had received back in 1992 from the scientific journal Nature. It was a rejection letter. It was a rejection letter for an article he had submitted, an article that was on the same research that 25 years later would win him a Nobel Prize. Now, I don't know how Peter Radcliffe responded to that rejection letter when he got it in 1992. I don't know if he got sad or if he got angry or if he just shrugged it off. I don't know if he went into a deep funk and questioned all of his research or if he just doubled down on it, knowing he had something really good. But what we do know is that ultimately he didn't let that rejection letter deter him from his work. It appears that Peter Radcliffe is not someone who gets paralyzed by the fear of rejection. Which is great if you're a Nobel Prize winner, but what about us, ordinary mortals? How do those of us without Nobel-quality brains live in a way that is unafraid of rejection? That's the question we're going to talk about today as we're continuing our sermon series on fear. So we took a brief hiatus from the series last week when Bishop Guernsey was with us, and it was so great to hear him talk and encourage us about bringing people to meet Jesus. But before we took that little break, we have been talking about some of the different things that we fear. Things like change, failure, people who are different from us. And we've talked about how fear is a normal emotion, It's something that God gave us for our protection. The problem isn't that we sometimes feel afraid. The problem comes when we live afraid, when we get stuck in our fear and we can't experience the joy and the freedom that God intends for us as his children. So we've been talking these last four weeks about how God invites and enables us to live unafraid. So on the Sunday that we talked about the fear of failure, one of you said to me after the service, I don't think we fear failure. I think we fear rejection. And while I still think that the fear of failure is its own distinct kind of fear, I think that person was onto something. Because one of the outcomes of failure can be rejection. And rejection hurts. It hurts deep. Rejection of something that we do hurts enough. 
whether it's a scientific article we've written or a meal we've cooked for someone we love. But when we feel rejected for who we are, when we feel rejected as a person, that is some of the most painful stuff that we can experience. There's an author and researcher, very well known, you may know, Brene Brown, and she writes about some of these things, and she captures really well why rejection is so painful. Because it denies our basic need as human beings for love and belonging. In her book, The Gifts of Imperfection, Brown writes, and I'm going to quote this at some length, she writes, a deep sense of love and belonging is an irreducible need of all women, men, and children. We are biologically, cognitively, physically, and spiritually wired to love, to be loved, and to belong. When those needs are not met, we don't function as we were meant to. We break, we fall apart, we numb, we ache, we hurt others, we get sick. There are certainly other causes of illness, numbing, and hurt, but the absence of love and belonging will always lead to suffering. When we experience rejection, when we experience not belonging or being loved, there is always suffering. And so we try to avoid that suffering. The pain of rejection leads us to try to avoid rejection. And avoiding rejection in the ends eventually in living afraid of rejection. And that avoidance and that fear can show up all over the place. We see it in our school and our work. We see it in our relationships. We even see it, maybe most of all, in our relationship with God. So think about what happens at school. We're afraid of rejection, and so we don't raise our hands and share the big or crazy-seeming idea that we have because we're afraid that our teacher's going to tell us we're wrong or our classmates will laugh at us. And if we're adults at work, we do more or less the same thing. We often don't take risks. We don't pursue our dreams or our passions because we're afraid somebody will tell us that they're dumb or we are, that someone will reject these ideas and these hopes that lie so close to our hearts. And we see this fear of rejection in relationships of all kinds. Think about friendships. I remember my first day of orientation in divinity school. I met a woman who I seemed to connect with. We had some interesting conversations. She seemed like somebody I wanted to be friends with. Fifteen years later, I still remember how nervous I was when a few weeks later I asked her if she wanted to go to a concert with me. I was as nervous as if I had been asking somebody out on a date because I was afraid she was going to say no. I was afraid that she would think that I wasn't as interesting as I thought she was. I was afraid she wouldn't want to be my friend. I was afraid of rejection. The good news of that story is that she said yes to the concert. She's one of my dearest friends in the world today. And we still laugh about our first friend date and how vulnerable and scary those first weeks of seminary felt for both of us. 
So we see this fear of rejection in our friendships. We see it in romantic relationships. Certainly when a relationship is just starting out, whether it's asking someone on a date or going on the date and seeing if they're going to like you. There is the fear of rejection in asking someone to marry you. But even beyond that, there's the fear of rejection in the day in and day out of marriage. Do we risk sharing our deepest selves with our spouses? Do we risk sharing our irrational fears, our haunting doubts, our unspoken dreams? Sometimes the person that we're closest to can be the hardest person to share these things with because they are so close to our hearts that we feel like if they dismiss them or laugh at them or even just don't get them, then this person we are closest to has rejected this part of us and that pain feels like it would be unbearable. Our fear of rejection shows up in all kinds of places and maybe no more, nowhere else more than in our relationship with God or our lack of one. There are so many people who do not have a relationship with God because they are convinced at the core of themselves that God couldn't possibly love someone like them. Someone who has messed up as badly as they have. Someone who has hurt others or been hurt by others as deeply as they have. People will avoid a relationship with God out of the fear that God will reject them. And even those of us who don't avoid a relationship with God altogether, sometimes we avoid a really deep and intimate relationship with God out of the same fear of rejection. We're afraid of what God will say to us if we bring our deepest secrets or fears or sins or hurts or accusations to him. So we avoid talking to God about the really hard stuff. We try to sort of clean up our acts in prayer, put on a good face for God. We only bring part of ourselves to our relationship with God so that God can't reject the rest of us. Our fear of rejection shows up in all kinds of places. But what's really wrong with it? What happens when we get stuck in this fear, when we live afraid of rejection? The problem is that it sets up this sort of vicious cycle. So when we fear rejection, we... We, we fear rejection because we don't want to be left alone, right? We don't want somebody to say, I don't want you. So we, when we fear rejection, we come to fear this and avoid the state that makes us able to be rejected, which is vulnerability, right? Vulnerability is showing up in our weakness, in our brokenness, just our inability to protect ourselves from emotional hurt, But the problem with avoiding vulnerability is that if we don't have vulnerability, we can't experience real belonging. Brene Brown puts it like this, true belonging only happens when we present our authentic, imperfect selves to the world. 
So we fear rejection because we fear not experiencing love and belonging. But our fear causes us to avoid vulnerability, which is the very thing that's required for real love and belonging. And if we don't experience belonging and love, then we feel alone, which is the thing that caused us to fear rejection in the first place. So when we live afraid of rejection, we get caught in this vicious cycle of loneliness and isolation and pain. So what do we do? How do we escape that cycle of living afraid of rejection? This is where I think our scripture passages today have some really important things to say to us. So we start almost at the very beginning, in back in Genesis. In Genesis 3, the story of the fall. But a couple things to note in here, even before our passage picks up this morning. So you'll know, of course, that when God creates Adam and Eve, he says this is very good. And it, and it says, they were naked and unashamed. Now, nakedness is vulnerability. So vulnerability is how God created humanity. It was part of what he called good. Our being vulnerable and our being dependent on God, that was part of God's good created order. It's how he designed it to be. It was so normal that Adam and Eve didn't even think that their vulnerability was something that needed to be hidden. They didn't really realize that they should, or they didn't think they should hide or protect themselves in the vulnerability of their nakedness. But then the serpent comes along and he tempts Adam and Eve because he says, don't you want to be like God? And they think, yeah, that'd be pretty good. So in their desire to be like God, that is when they come to realize, in that rebellion, they come to realize that they're naked. They come to see that they are vulnerable. And this is when they start to think that their vulnerability is something that needs to be hidden and to be covered up. So they make themselves clothes out of leaves. And then when God comes looking for them, they hide. They hide because they know they're naked. They hide because they are afraid of their vulnerability. And that is not how God ever intended for it to be. Who told you that you were naked? He says to them. And the the key verse of this story, I think, comes in verse 21. They have sinned. They have rebelled against God. They have tried to set themselves up as God. And they are being expelled from the Garden of Eden as a result. But what does God do for them first? He makes them close. He covers them. He doesn't take their loincloths of leaves away from them and make them suffer in their knowledge of their nakedness. Instead, he graciously clothes them. God meets them and cares for them in their vulnerability. Because of the fall because of the sinfulness that we all have within us and the brokenness of the world around us, we live in a world where vulnerability is not safe. People will reject us. They will hurt us. 
They will exploit us. But what we see in Genesis 3 is that God comes to us and meets us in our vulnerability, and he cares for us in it. In the clothes that God makes for Adam and Eve, we see a picture of the gentleness of how God cares for us in our vulnerability. And that presence, God's presence and care, are part of his invitation to us to live free of the fear of rejection. We may experience it, we will, but we don't have to live afraid of it because God is with us in our vulnerability and he cares for us in our vulnerability. And we see this, I think, to an even greater extent in our passage from John's Gospel. This is one of my absolute favorite stories in all of Scripture. There is a lot going on in this story, so we're only going to look at a couple dimensions of it. But some key things to attune to. First of all, this story is about Jesus and a Samaritan woman. So Samaritans were considered by Jews to be half-breeds. They didn't associate with them, as John tells us Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And she was a woman, which means she was, enti- she was a second-class citizen even within the Samaritan culture. So to Jesus, a Jewish man, she would be way down on the totem pole. This woman is someone who knew rejection, and she was someone who had every reason to expect rejection. We see that even at the fact that she is at the well when Jesus gets there, when John, which John tells us is at the sixth hour, which is basically noon. Normally women would go to the well early in the morning to avoid the heat of the day, but by this woman coming at noon, it tells us that she was trying to avoid the company of the other women in the town. This is a woman who knew rejection and expected rejection, and that's what she expected from Jesus. She says, why, why are you asking me for water? She expects Jesus to reject him, her. But that is not what she gets. Instead, she gets a Jesus who engages her in conversation. So they have this whole conversation about water and living water. And you can imagine it's kind of actually funny because she seems to think he's talking about some sort of literal water and just doesn't get it, but she knows she wants whatever he's offering. And then Jesus says, go, get your husband and bring him here. And she says, I don't don't have a husband. And he says, right, you've had five husbands and the one you're living with right now, you're not married to. What's going on here? Is Jesus shaming her with this question you don't have a husband you've had five and you're not living with the one, you're not married to the one you're living with i don't think that's what's happening because we look at her response she says sir i perceive you are a prophet and then she goes on and has more conversation with him when someone is shaming us we don't sit there and say hey i'd really like to hear some more of what you think about me When someone is telling us we're not good enough, that we don't deserve love and belonging and respect, we don't keep engaging with that person. 
But that's what the woman did. So what Jesus is doing must not be shaming her. What is he doing? Well, he is not avoiding her vulnerability. She is vulnerable as a woman of some sort of ill repute here. He, she is vulnerable. And he doesn't avoid that, but he invites her into it. He knows that this is the place where she is going to feel shame. And so that is exactly the place where he chooses to show her love. She, he shows her love by not shaming her, and he shows her love by making this incredible revelation to her. She says, I know, she's trying to figure out where they're supposed to worship and who really worships God, and he's telling her this stuff about worshiping in spirit and truth, and she's like, I don't really get it, but I know the Messiah is going to come, and when he does, he'll, he'll explain all this stuff. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you, am he. Jesus makes this incredible revelation to her that he is the Christ, the Messiah. Just think of the fact that God incarnate would make this revelation about himself to an immoral, Gentile woman. The lowest of the low in this society. That is how Jesus shows her love precisely where she is vulnerable. And we can see how much that love must have transformed her heart, how it must have banished shame and made her felt so loved and that she so belonged because what does she do? She runs into town and she says, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. If I meet someone who can tell you everything I ever did, I'm not going to invite you to come meet him. (laughs) But she is so sure of her love, of, of being loved. She is so sure that she belongs. She has so been freed of her shame. That she wants everyone to come meet this man who she knows is the Christ. Jesus meets the Samaritan woman in her vulnerability precisely so that he can show her love in the place where she is most afraid of being rejected. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he do this with the Samaritan woman, and why does he do it with us? Jesus does this because this is who Jesus is. This is the nature of God, and it is what God has created us for, which is to say love in vulnerability. So we see this in our last reading, the final part of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, as it's sometimes called. Paul writes, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, then I'll know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three But the greatest of these is love.
Rachel Held Evans, in her book, Searching for Sunday, wrote about this passage. She said, The Apostle Paul says we only see through a mirror dimly. I think, I may be wrong, but I think the point is this. What each of us longs for the most is to be both fully known and fully loved. And miraculously, God feels the same way about us. God, too, wants to be fully known and fully loved. And God wants this so much that he has promised to knock down every obstacle in the way, enduring even his own death to be with us, to consummate this love. And so in those relationships and in those moments when we experience the joy and the ecstasy and the relief of being both totally vulnerable and absolutely cherished, we get just a taste, a mere glimpse of what God has always felt for us and what one day we will feel for God. What we each long for most is to be fully known and fully loved. What God wants most is to be fully known and fully loved. And God has done what only God could do so that both he and we can experience that deepest longing of experiencing love and belonging. This is the key to living unafraid of rejection, being rooted in the love of the one who promises never to leave us or forsake us, who promises never to reject us. This doesn't mean that we won't experience rejection from our fellow humans. It doesn't mean that it won't hurt when we do. They will. It will hurt. But it will not destroy us. Because in Christ, God has made himself vulnerable. God experienced the ultimate rejection so that for us, Rejection never has to be the last word. Love and belonging will be the last word. Thanks be to God. Amen.